Hello, and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. Today, we welcome Institutional Portfolio Manager Elan Collette as he unpacks his insights on how the Global Asset Allocation Team is positioning Fidelity Managed Portfolios for 2024. Elon discusses the differences in performance between a balance fund and a guaranteed investment certificate, or GIC, in Canada. Balance funds performed far better by the end of 2023 than in the year prior, surpassing the GIC. The risk-adjusted return that can be provided in multi-asset class funds has now become a better prospect for longer-term investors, although the GIC could still benefit those with a shorter investment horizon. Alon discusses Canada's upcoming productivity prospects and how they will differ from the United States. While America's productivity has been on a steep incline that does not look to be slowing down, Canada's standard of living has not improved since the 90s with no major changes in the near future. The track record for each country is very telling regarding this year, and Canada does not have America's airtight labour market or declining inflation that would solidify a notable increase in potential growth. This podcast was recorded on January 15th, 2024. Okay, but let's talk it through, first of all. Um, These questions were probably pummeled at you over the course of of last year, the beginning of this year. GICs was the question I found of last year. Um, And everyone asking sort of why we shouldn't be in that. Uh, Do tell, how do you answer that? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason that's the first question in this paper. you know, last year I did, I think I did 80 flights. I spent almost Did 50, you really? I That's a I lot. Did, yeah. I, I spent a tremendous amount of time on the road from coast to coast talking to advisors, a lot of whom are joining us today. Um, and that GIC question came up in every single discussion in every room across the country, right? Why should I buy, a, why, would, why would I buy a balance fund over a GIC? And I think that question really is motivated in the experience of 2022, right? So in 2022, the balance fund was dead, right? Because stocks and bonds, the 60-40 was sort of down and downer. And the attractiveness of a GIC for, for absolute return was pretty evident. 2023, I think, really sort of uh, shined the light on the fact that this isn't a permanent, uh, a permanent state. Uh, you know, we're coming back to a more normal return environment. Um, and for that reason, that risk-adjusted return that we can provide in our multi-asset class funds is just more attractive than a GIC for the medium to long-term investor. The thing I would add, though, is, you know, GICs for someone with a significant who wants a significant amount of downside protection or um, has a shorter investment horizon potentially makes sense. But what I would add is we have access to asset classes in our funds, right, short-term securities that can provide that. And there have been times, specifically in 2022, for example, when we've been meaningfully overweight those asset classes because of the yield pickup in those short-term securities. I mean, the story of 2022 was was the correlation. The story of 2023 was was the rate rises. I mean, it was that everyone's eyes were sort of open wide and kind of watering at watching this happen. So, so take us through why everything worked in 2023 for some of those returns. Yeah. So, I mean, 2023, again, I think, um, you know, sentiment was exceptionally negative at the end of 2022. 2023, we saw these really dramatic uh, rate increases and some of the effects. But I think where we're where we've landed today is, uh, you know, a significant amount of resilience, specifically in the U.S. Um, right. Again, we're, we're still okay. cautious around 
the macroeconomic sustainability and future in Canada. But I think the meaningful change for us has been a view towards a more resilient US, a potential soft landing, and a, real, and a significant change, I would say, in positioning in terms of what that soft landing means for US equities and, and that asset it, class. What does it mean in terms of, I mean, so 60-40 so is actually, it's actually what you're doing, is that right? Exactly, and it, it, again, it really matters what is your 60 and what What's is your 40. What's in the 40. 60, yeah, right. let's start there. And, yeah, so in the 60, right, so that's 60, I'm talking about the global balance uh, portfolio, um, that's globally diversified equities, right? Where the benchmark weights will still have lots of Canada and lots of US. And what we do is we hire underlying managers. We use underlying managers from across Fidelity in Canada, in the US and overseas who are best in class and are motivated to beat their benchmark. If they win, we win by having them in our funds. And then the second layer to what we do is lean in or out of asset classes, currency style sectors, to enhance return over and above, right? So right now, for example, we're overweight U.S. equities. Okay. Um, and that includes sort of your discussion of how you think about the currency itself. Exactly, yeah. right? So we're overweight U.S. equities right now because of that increased conviction and view in the soft landing and, and the idea that perhaps we're in the midst of a sort of productivity boom in the U.S., hmm. which we should talk about. We're well, and yeah. we're underweight Canadian equities because, not because we think that the underlying managers are, are not going to do well because we think as a region, the US will outperform Canada, hmm. right? And so again, this is an important nuance. If the Canadian managers that we use for our Canadian equity sleeve do well against their benchmarks, we win. But if the US outperforms and we sprinkle in more US source from the underweight to Canada, we add value as well, right? So, so the underweight to Canada, wh what else? is overweight in comparison. In, in, so within the equities, overweight to U.S., what what else is overweight comparison to sort of the Canadian equity story? What else is in yeah, so we have regionally, I guess. Right, so we yeah. have overweights to Europe um, and, inter, and emerging markets, as well as commodity producers. Those are smaller, I would say, and okay. those haven't changed by as much as, say, the U.S. equity position. Um, you know, the overweights to uh, Europe, for example, and emerging markets are quite small. Uh, relatively small, the overweight to uh, commodity producers, that's really motivated in our view towards inflation Okay. Um, as an inflation hedge. I would say the most meaningful change, in my view, is that is our change in view around the U.S. It right? is massive because, I mean, we've spoken over the years and, and um, that has not been the case. That's sort of a much more bullish approach. On, it is. It yeah. is. I mean, and so, um, again, you know, that 60-40 right now, it, it can be plus or minus 15%, right? So the 60-40... A global balance fund can be a 75 25. Okay. Right now, it's slightly overweight equities, you know, in the right. range of say 3%. Um, but the change to the US side, I think, is meaningful because of our view towards this potential productivity boom coming from, well, it's very hard to know where it's coming from. You have to sort of look at the, st the statistics that surround it. But you could imagine a case, for example, maybe investments in clean technology, uh, AI, or more flexible work arrangements have just boosted the predict the productive capacity of the US. And because of that, growth can outperform, the labor market can remain tight, earnings can do well in equities. Okay, so can we just, uh, you've got a slide, so let's bring up the productivity slide, if, if that's okay, I think it's number two. Um, let's talk about productivity in Canada as, as sort of a counter to what you just described. Sure. Yeah, tell us about how Canada's productivity stacks up and why. Right, so I mean, this is gonna be a real 
this is going to be the other side of the coin. Okay. So I, I just sort of mentioned the great outcome or the great case for the U.S., right? So the U.S., uh, we think the likelihood of this productivity boom happening in the U.S., uh, happening is much more likely in the U.S. Um, and that's really in part based on history, right? So in Q4 of last year, I know we're talking about the Q1 paper, but in Q4 of last year, we wrote a paper called Potential, where we really examined this productivity, the productivity differences between Canada and the U.S. And again, you know, the the productivity record in the U.S. is a straight line up, and the productivity record in Canada, at least since the 90s, is a flat line. There so are, some people say it's like we're just overregulated. I mean, it, there's a lot of sort of reasons flung at it. Um, maybe they're all true. I don't know. Uh, tell us how to look at that. Yeah, there. I mean, there are the one thing we've been very productive on is producing research on productivity. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, there's no shortage of research on productivity. Um, we haven't really solved the issue. Have and you this, read it all? Can no, the, no one. No one can read it all. I mean, this was an issue. This was an issue of research or an area of research when I started at the bank over 20 years ago. Um, bank of Canada. The Bank of Canada yeah, over, yeah. over 20 years ago. I mean, it, and this will be, this research will outlive me. Um, <laughs> the chart that we included in the paper, in, the, in our Q1 paper, these 11 questions for 2024, I think is really interesting because it shows the damaging of effects of a housing bubble and housing investment on long-term productivity growth. Okay, now hang on right. a second. So, okay, so you're, you're, you're out there, you're doing your very best to try and buy a house. If you're lucky enough to actually be able to do that, you're putting all your money in there. Which means, which means, residential investment is, which is what the GDP accounts called housing, as a share of GDP is a straight line up, right? And this is what this chart will show that we're looking at. Hmm. The share of residential investment in GDP is a straight line up, and the uh, productivity growth by decade is a slowly faltering line downwards. Um, and there's been some interesting research on this, to, and I think it's intuitive to suggest. If you know that, if you believe that you can get X amount of return uh, by buying one, two, three, four condos in one of the suburbs of one of the major cities, or even not one of the major cities, why would you take the risk in opening that coffee shop or restaurant, right? If the if small business, exactly, whatever the small business is, you have a great idea, and it, it just doesn't work out. Exactly, exactly, and and that and that housing investment has been that sure thing for so long. The hmm. problem is culminated over several decades that has a really meaningful impact on productivity growth and which and the reason we care about productivity growth probably the most important point is it meaningfully affects standards of living right so the way that you boost the quality of life in a country or potential growth is you increase labor supply or you boost how productive you are right so you either have more people on the production line making widgets or you get more productive at making the widgets We've never really been productive at making the widgets. So, you know, maybe one silver lining is the AI. enormous increase in, in immigration. And okay. Okay. That's really interesting. So there's room actually for this productivity story to shift, would you say? Or are we kind of locked in this? It's very hard to know. I mean, I would say the way that we're thinking about it in the, in the context of the funds that we manage is we think this likelihood of a boost of productivity is much more likely to be happening in the U.S. Okay, and that's in part because they have an incredible track record of um, of, of productivity gains, and a lot of the surrounding data sort of smells and looks like a productivity boom right now, right? So, um, a very tight labor market, less tight than it's been. There's been a slight drift higher in the unemployment rate, but a very tight labor market and really significant declines in inflation, right? 
those two things, for example, speak to this idea that maybe the stall speed of the U.S. is just higher than what we think it is. Mm. And again, this happened in the mid to late 90s. So in the mid to late 90s, we had really strong productivity growth because of the advent of the Internet changing business processes. This kept inflation tame. This kept the labor market tight. And this was a very, very good story for earnings um, and growth. And so equities. you have wide ranging expertise, Ilan, but but your expertise is inflation, which did nothing for a decade or so. Right. Longer than that. <laughs> and now it's doing a lot. So if you would like to take a guess at the first question coming in right sure. now for the audience is uh, what you think of the cuts story and, and what, what would you attach to cuts coming through? Where is inflation? Right. So, I mean, in order to really answer the path of the Fed or the Bank of Canada, we have to think about inflation. Yeah. Right. And I've got a chart for that. That we do have yeah. a chart for that. Yeah. And I, and we've, we've sort of joked in the past that when I was the head of inflation and commodities research in Boston, the hardest thing about that job was making a number that hadn't moved in 20 years interesting every month. How did you do that? Anyway, we'll yeah. talk about that later. <laughs> so, and now, I mean, again, that, that inflation rate went from, you know, sub 2% to 8 and 9% in Canada and the US. The chart we're looking at right now, shows the rate of uh, inflation for core inflation in the U.S. That's the solid line at the top. And it's disaggregated into the push coming from goods prices and service prices. And we've talked about this a lot in the past. Uh, inflation surged much higher during the pandemic because, you know, uh, there were a lot of us trying to buy fewer number of goods, right? So there was a supply chain shock and we were locked into our house so we could only buy the goods. Goods prices pushed a lot higher, but have now normalized. So goods prices are now inflating at their pre-COVID rate. It doesn't mean they're cheaper. It right. means that rate is it means the rate of change is now now looks something like pre-COVID. They're still much more expensive. Mm -hmm. um, Will that hold? Mm, nor I mean, it depends. If we get a recession, normally goods prices deflate. Um, but goods prices right now are inflating at pre-COVID uh, uh, rates. Okay. So I sort of cross that off the list. What we're left with is a tight labor market leading to strong wage growth, leading to strong service prices. And so that's that other blue area in the chart that shows the lift to underlying inflation is still coming from elevated service prices and service price inflation. The thing is that has actually slowed meaningfully, right? So like I mentioned, core PCE inflation, I think in the chart we're looking at CPI, but core inflation as, me as measured by CPI or PCE has slowed materially over the last six months. Um, the Fed knows this. Uh, we know this as well. And um, in, in our view, I think it's not impossible that we see uh, a significant number of cuts this year in the U.S. Because everything's too tight, not because it's a recession we need to cut, cut, cut out of it. Exactly. So the motivation for the cut really matters, right? And we don't, yeah. again, we don't forecast individual rate decisions. Um, it's exceptionally hard to say we're going to get, you know, four cuts, five cuts, six cuts. The answer is we don't really know, um, or who will cut first, the bank or the Fed. What we know is, uh, let's who see. will cut first, the bank or the Fed? <laughs> right. So it's very like, hard to know. Um, like um, to know. yeah. And so, okay, anyway. uh, but if neutral is in the twos and we're in the fives, right? We're unnecessarily tight. Let's say the U.S. is unnecessarily tight given the improvement in inflation and less, uh, tightness in the labor market. And so, you know, the, I think in my view, the Fed is very well aware that they were too late to rate hikes post COVID, mm -hmm. right? Which led to an oversh overshooting inflation rate. I don't think they want to be too late in terms of cuts because mm -hmm. you could risk, um, damaging the consumer or the housing market 
unnecessarily and sort of not and cutting off that um, that recovery or potentially that productivity boom as well. Which is why the Fed said what it said in in December, because it, it was a little bit surprising to people, actually. I, I think so. Certainly I mean, I think what I think what we're observing, especially from the Fed, is a, is a pivot, right, is a little bit of a pivot from. Again, they're going to always remain. They're going to always retain that language that they have to remain vigilant, that we're keenly focused on inflation. But they also have to acknowledge, you know, a six-month annualized rate of core PCE inflation that's 1.9 percent, and an unemployment rate that has drifted higher. Right? Those are outright positives, um, and they don't necessarily need to be as restrictive, say, by the end of this year, as they were at the end of last year. So one of the questions in in this most recent paper that you've published is is the soft landing question, um, and can the economy stick to the soft landing? I feel like you're going to answer this in terms of the U.S. and Canada. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that again, this is a different story. in In the U.S., I think the likelihood of a soft landing has materially increased, right? And it's one since of since when since let's say six, nine, twelve months ago. Okay. Um, right. We have that slow drift higher in the unemployment rate. We have significant improvements on, on underlying inflation through a broad based, a, a broad number of measures. Um, and, and I think this is what's being recognized. Um, and so the, I think the soft landing in the U.S. is quite likely in part because of this productivity boom that we think we're, we're in the midst of. It's a different story in Canada, right? So in, in Canada, and this explains why we're still cautious on Canada, while we're, why we're underweight Canadian equities, underweight the Canadian dollar as well, is Elevated rates are still going to be intersecting much higher levels of, um, of, of household debt. Right? So we've talked at length about this. Household debt is exceptionally high in Canada, much higher, much higher than in the U.S., really on any, other, any measure you want to look at. And it's going to be intersecting um, higher rates, uh, higher borrowing rates. Right? So the housing market, again, was on fire 2019, 20, and 21. Most of us have five-year terms on our mortgages. 2019 plus five is this year that we're in right now, next year and the following year. And even if rates decline, even if the Bank of Canada brings rates lower, they're not, I don't believe they're bringing rates to pre-COVID lows, right? So right. those we're, resets- We're up off that for, exactly, for good, at exactly. least for the foreseeable future. Exactly. Okay. And so, you know, the resets or the um, the stress test levels of borrowing rates for, for housing and for revolving credit will be will be higher. And that will- necessitate a pullback in discretionary consumer spending. Consumer spending is two thirds of GDP. We get a pullback in that, you know, we get a, we get a recession. So we're actually gonna talk about that even more later on in the week, um, digging into that. We did hear the bank CEOs last week uh, in Canada sort of pour a little bit of cold water on the fact that, you know, the mortgage story is gonna get out of control. Like the, I think it's sort of a collective mm -hmm. message. It seemed to be that it's going to be okay. What, what do you take? from that that maybe what does that mean cuts actually yeah I, I mean i think in part they sort of have to say that i mean they can't yeah. i i don't think they can be doomsdayers yeah um you know from their position they have to they have sort of a, a responsibility to sort of toe that line yeah. um ultimately if you look at the elevated rates of household debt in canada and the bore and where borrowing rates are now um and you actually look at where the debt service ratio in Canada should have gone, it would have been the highest rate in 30 years, right? So, and why didn't the debt service ratio in Canada get to that highest rate in 30 years? It was because of some creative math, right? So creative mortgage math, right? And it was, 
again, I don't think any Canadian bank wants to foreclose on half of a suburb. I don't think they want that Globe and Mail headline. I think that's very natural. And so there was some creative math to really, I don't think banks want to own houses. Um, there was some creative math done in order to keep um, homeowners in their houses. But eventually there has to be this sort of, um, this sort of, uh, you know, the rate shock that will result in the monthly carrying costs of that debt just being higher. Mm -hmm. And Canadians have full recourse mortgages. We historically don't give back the keys, right. but you cut to the bone all the discretionary stuff Which to, make sure, to make sure that payment gets made. Okay, so, um, and just one of the other questions in, in the paper is just how the Bank of Canada, so, so just give us a bit more on how the Bank of Canada is, is watching this. Yeah, so the bank, I mean, again, I spent you know almost a decade at the bank and so did my colleagues, David Tolkien and David Wolf, they spent time at the, at the bank as well. The bank is well aware of the stresses in the household sector. You called it the bank when you worked there? Yeah, it's, it's the bank. I think it's so. Not, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, it is, I guess. Right, right, I never really noticed that. Um, um, you know, so uh, the, the bank is well aware of the stress that, that households are facing. Um, they've done a lot of interesting research on that. Uh, and they have no intention to overcool the Canadian economy. That said, the bank has one job. And that's to keep inflation between one and three percent, right? We're getting there. We're not there yet. Um, and so I think it's very likely you do see the bank um, sort of become less tight this year, right? So again, rate the way to think about rate cuts in 2024 is not as a reaction to some damaging effect to the real side, right? An increase in the unemployment rate or or growth falling off a cliff. The way to think about rate cuts, and this is the case for the bank or the Fed, is less restrictive okay. right so it's too tight exactly. for, the, for, for the environment that it's in exactly um, and it's being data dependent which they both said that that they'll do so one of the questions coming in takes us back to the great perspective i thought you gave us on on productivity so let's just swing back around so they're asking how do you define productivity growth uh so productivity growth that's a great question so productivity growth is a squishy statistic i think um myself and my co-authors would agree on this one of the problems with uh, productivity statistics, so it's normally measured as output per hour, right? right? So okay. output per hour or output per worker, mm -hmm. um, it's normally like how much you're producing for the given number, given amount of input. Yeah. It's a very easy thing to measure if all you, if everything an economy produces is on a production line, right? That's a very, very simple thing to measure. It's very difficult to measure in the service sector. And most of Canada works in the service sector. Uh, most of the U.S. works in the service sector. Most of most developed economies work in the service sector. It's very different than you know Canada or the U.S. say post-war, right, or during the wartime, where you're measuring the number of widgets that are coming off the factory line and the number of people working in the factory. The way that I think about that question is, uh, in terms of, you know, another way to phrase that question would be, what are you looking for to see if we're in a if we're actually in a productivity Probably. boom, mm -hmm. right? And the answer is you have to look at all the statistics that a productivity boom would lead to uh, an improvement on, right? So again, like, in, like, like inflation, right? What? So, okay. or, or high rates of growth. Mm -hmm. So for example, high rates of growth without that inflation. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the mid to late so 90s- that's our star, kind of. <laughs> sort of, kinda. It, it definitely yeah. affects that, but, um, we're going to get nerdy here. But, I know, uh, this is fun. But, I like this. But, it's only seven minutes to go. <laughs> exactly. Um, in the mid to late 90s, right, when the U.S. was in the midst of a productivity boom, we were seeing elevated rates of growth without overheating inflation or a labor market, right? We were seeing a tight labor market, but we weren't seeing 
over uh, inflation overheating. That is the weather pattern that would be associated with a productivity a productivity growth, right mm-hmm. and and again like it's very very hard to identify in the moment because the stats won't tell you that 10 years later the stats will say oh yeah by the way those low rates of inflation high rates of growth high high earnings and strong equity market kind of looked like a productivity boom 10 years ago i mean again statisticians are very good at forecasting the past um, you have a question on, on the U.S. dollar, on the currency with, within your paper. This question um, has sort of a specific tone. So let's dig into this. So could a strong U.S. dollar hurt emerging markets this year? Um, it's possible. I think a lot of investors believe, you know, think about this strong U.S. dollar weak EM type of position. Um, I think there's two ways to think about this question. So the first is in the context of our underweight to the Canadian dollar. Most of it being an overweight to the U.S. dollar. Mm-hmm. So that's the first question. And then the second one is, how do we think about emerging markets in the context of our portfolio? So maybe I'll just do one at a time if that's Perfect. okay. Um, you know, so the Canadian dollar, we've had a meaningful underweight to the Canadian dollar for some time. The underweight right now is is significant. Um, for us, the way that we've used the Canadian dollar, the underweight to the Canadian dollar, which is an overweight to the U.S., as it as is a um, as a shock absorber, right? So a reliable diversifier in the event that stocks and bonds are positively correlated, right? right. And so uh, it, it's interesting for us because we have um, we have a lever that can not only improve uh, the overall risk-adjusted return, so the risk, but also the return, right? So if we're underweight the Canadian dollar and the Canadian dollar depreciates because of some of the stress that we discussed today, our funds get hurt less. Right. right? Okay. And and so that's the first thing. It's a shock absorber. It's a shock absorber. Um, and, and that's how we kind of think about it. Uh, and that's actually the most important reason why I would say why we use why and how we use that that underweight to the Canadian dollar. The second part of that question in relation to emerging markets, um, you know, one of the reasons you'll almost always see us with a toe dipped into emerging markets is not necessarily the cyclical a view towards the cyclical. Now, again, China's the largest chunk of that emerging market basket. I don't, I don't think the cyclical is getting much worse from here. Hmm. And given that sentiment is one of the important pillars of our process, we sort of want to be leaning into that incredibly negative sentiment. Um, but the other way to think about emerging markets is with a view towards the secular, right? So we spent a lot of time talking about productivity today. Okay. Uh, in emerging markets, the expected productivity growth over the a 20 to 50 year horizon is quite high, right? Because of leapfrogs to productivity growth and they have better demographics, right? So we're old in the West and they're and generally, generally emerging markets are younger. And so the intersection of productivity and younger demographics means the secular profile for growth and potentially earnings growth and equities is, is higher over a longer, over that longer period of time. Fascinating. Okay. Um, Let's just quickly dip into this Canadian housing shortage story. I mean, it goes to a lot of the stuff you're talking about with productivity. How, how do you think about that? How, how big is the shortage? Yeah, so this is this is one of the questions that we answer in detail in um, in the paper yeah. in response to a CMHC article that talked about how much uh, how much new housing would have to be built really to keep things at current levels. Um, it's it's probably too difficult to get into the specifics of this because well, it's, you can read the paper. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. in the paper. But what we would say is 
what we would say is um, housing is meaningfully out of balance in Canada, even with a huge increase in the supply that, that should be prescribed or that should be built, right? So again, um, you know, if you look at Canadian housing across a broad number of measures, really cross country, we are by far uh, the outlier. Um, and I think that's the result of a number of things, right? The rates being too low for too long, right? Lack of oversight in terms of foreign investment, right? There's a number of reasons why that's the case. Um, and, and in the paper, we explore just how big this so-called shortage is. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, housing, I think, is the function of the supply and the demand factors. Um, but I think the, perhaps a more interesting result is just how damaging the sort of crowding out of other investment how housing has done in terms of productivity. Oh my gosh, right? that's so interesting. So that, that, that crowding that out effect okay. is, is that crowding out effect is really critical, and and that and, is sort of the economic exactly. piece. I mean, and and then the crisis of sort of where humans are going to live is a, is a whole another piece, but just sort of that economic piece. So I want to end where we began, which was this discussion of the balance funds. Sure. How you are? I mean, you guys are bullish right now. This right. Is, this is <laughs> new. It is. It is. Um. So. Uh, you know, in our in our managed portfolios and the portfolios that we manage for Canadian investors, we're overweight equities, slightly overweight equities. Again, we have significant tactical bands in the managed portfolios, right. and we're slightly overweight because uh, these funds aim to be tactical, and that's really how we can how we've added value over the last uh, ten years is by combining a great team of underlying managers, many of whom you speak to regularly, with using our four pillar research based process to lean in or out of asset classes, currencies, styles, and sectors to really add that additional layer of return. And so right now, you know, we're overweight equities. Um, and I think the biggest change uh, for us is, is the overweight to US equity. Okay, Alain Collette, Institutional Portfolio Manager at Fidelity. Thank you so much Thanks. for joining us and kind of helping us to, to get through this paper that we're all gonna go home and read right now. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. While visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada, ULC, or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments.